Welcome to Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. Real Estate Coaching Radio is the nation's number one daily radio show for realtors who demand authentic, real-time coaching. Get ready for fluff-free, unfiltered, full-strength honesty about what's truly working to get you into action, helping others, and making money now in today's real estate market. Now to our hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. Three, two, one, and I'm back. Julie actually has a full coaching schedule today, and so she asks that I do the podcast by myself, which I'm more than happy to do. So I'm going to talk today about something that I personally find kind of, well, it's wonkish and nerdish for sure, but it's also really incredibly powerful when you understand the concept of inflation versus appreciation. Now, I know this is a little bookish for some of you, and some of you are not going to necessarily get as much out of this as you would have had Julie and I have been talking about something that was maybe more motivational, but I'm going to challenge all of you to stay with me here, listen to what the differences are, listen to how to understand it and how to explain it. And I want you to monitor that at the end of this podcast today, you are actually going to feel motivated, you know, not motivated because we did a lot of raw, raw jumping around on chairs and whatnot, but raw, raw, because you are now realizing you've hopefully gotten a little bit smarter. Now, the importance of understanding this inflation versus appreciation thing as pertains to real estate is because as the market, as the real estate market, as the economy, and as the other things I'm going to share with you today, as they start to take hold in more meaningful ways, you're going to have your own real estate clients and your children and your spouses and your friends and your family, they're not going to understand what's going on in the economy. They're not going to understand what's actually happening around them to pricing. And you want to be able to explain it. And when you have just, if you just gather a little bit of the knowledge that I'm hopefully going to convey to you today, you're going to be somebody that's going to attract people to you at a higher level because they're going to realize that you've differentiated yourself or you have differentiated yourself in their mind because you obviously have a higher level of knowledge than, say, the average real estate agent. So as we go through this, I want you to take notes, concentrate, and I'm going to I'm start up by reading an article. And this is a response, by the way, to um, over the last uh, year, I would say, mostly in the last maybe six to eight months, Julie and I have been getting a lot of questions about um, why the house, why real estate is appreciating so fast. And people are predicting that, you know, agents are saying, well, there's going to be some kind of bust and there's going to be some kind of 2007, 2008 real estate crash and all these other types of thoughts. And we have been telling all of them consistently that there is not going to be a real estate crash. There is not going to be a bursting of the bubble. There's not going to be any rapid, you know, meaningful depreciation, certainly not a sort of nationwide depreciation. And I'm, and, and we're going to work through today on this podcast. Why? So start out with that question. Start out with that prevailing thought. If you're now in a, you know, obviously you're hopefully an active real estate agent, you're somewhere in the United States or somewhere in the world. No, we're listening to in literally over 50 different countries and you're facing a, a prospective client who's saying, I want to, you know, keep my powder dry. In other words, not buy anything until the prices drop. Well, Mr. You know, housing consumer, you might want to rethink that because there's really no reason to believe that prices will drop. Now, I want to be careful when I say that because that is a big universal statement and it's impossible that that is true, what I just said, because in some markets, there will be some areas in your markets where prices do decline and that's going to be due to things that are above and beyond what I'm going to be talking about today. For example, local employment, um, you know, there might be big factories that, you know, whatever, right? Those are the types of things that can cause cause local depreciation in, you know, in, even in the hottest of seller's markets. Uh, all of you are going to be experiencing, all the, the, it's called a bifurcation of a market. You're going to have, it's going to be like that real estate haves and have nots, but 
before I go down that rabbit hole, <laughs> let's focus on what inflation is versus deep uh, uh, appreciation. Now, as I was writing my notes for this today, I was so thrilled that I came across an article on the thoughtful real estate entrepreneur where this gentleman, I will find him looking for his name, actually did a fantastic job of explaining um, and he did this in a real in, using real estate stories. So it's like, uh, thank you for doing the heavy lifting for me. And I'm going to read you some of what he wrote. Okay, so I'm just going to start out here, and then we're going to dissect what he means by that. And I'm going to explain it for the intent with the intent of you guys understanding. But what I'm really trying to do is explaining it with the intent that you're going to then explain it to other people. So when we're going through this, explain it yourself. Explain it for yourself first. You know, so you understand it first, and then think about what the keywords are and how you're going to actually have this conversation with folks. Or even better, if you want to learn faster, as you're um, here, uh, you know, listening to me reading this to you and then discussing it with you, think about you having this very conversation with someone that you're trying to convey your wisdom to about what really is going on in the economy with regards to housing prices. Okay, so here's the article. In 2002, and this is, remember, this is not me. This is the gentleman who wrote this. In 2002, my wife and I bought our first home. We paid around 190000 for it. By 2005, it had appreciated, and he put that in quotes, which is, you know, actually, that's the accurate. It hadn't really appreciated until conveyed to us in a second, to close to 275000 Why? We had done some cosmetic work to it in the neighborhood. We bought it improved quite a bit. But uh, most importantly, the economy had simply uh, strengthened uh, a lot after the dot-com crash. Hold on a second. Need to make the font size larger. <laughs> so we took out the home equity line of credit uh, on the house, and we used the proceeds to fund the down payment on a triplex, our first rental property. In many ways, I credit the appreciation, in quotes, of the first house for launching my real estate career. In real estate, one of our favorite words is appreciation. After all, we love it when the value of our properties go up over time. We use the word appreciation very broadly to describe the situation where the value of the property has gone up. And he put value in quotes too. Uh, to, put the more, uh, to, be, uh, to put this in more economic terms, we use the word appreciation as a catch-all phrase to describe any situation where a number, uh, to describe, um, you know, basically any situation where the number of dollars increases that one must exchange in order to purchase our property. So let's just let's just level off there. So appreciation and um, inflation uh, have the same output. The cost of something increases. So just start out there, and that's where a lot of agents and brokers and just everyone gets confused because it feels the same. When something is inflating, the result is it's increasing in cost, uh, but not without a cost, as I'll explain in a second versus appreciating, which is also increasing in cost. So just stay with me on all this. This is this is where a lot of people will conflate the two terms uh, incorrectly. All right, so here there are really uh, two ways that appreciation happens on our properties. We make it happen, forced appreciation. We do this through developing a property, improving and expanding it. In other words, we make it more useful and valuable by changing the property for the better. Number two, the market appreciates. In this case, regardless of what we do, we see the value of the property go up along with the other properties in the market. The former, the former, we have control over. The latter, we do not. But we still, um, we're, we're still excited when it happens. The market appreciation may not be exactly as it seems, though. Let's take a moment and look at the important concepts of appreciation contrasted with inflation. All right. So I'm just going to continue reading. Appreciation is when the true intrinsic value of something increases. 
Now, I want you guys to think about what that first sentence means because it's incredibly well written and I love the, the brevity of it and it's so incredibly true. Appreciation is when the intrinsic value of something increases. So why would the intrinsic value of something increase? Well, obviously supply and demand would be the big one, right? Maybe it's something that was, uh, there's just few of, you know, uh, beachfront real estate, for example. And if you have, uh, you know, a lot of people that want it and there's not a lot of it for sale, then that's going to cause obvious appreciation. That's a really valuable asset to own. Now, back to his article. Notice I did not say the price or the cost of it increases, rather the value increases. Appreciation is when something becomes more valuable, more desirable, more useful. And here are examples of how your property could truly appreciate. You live in a town, point number one, you live in a town that is immensely more desirable than it was when you bought the property. And many people are moving uh, to town, increased demand uh, for the same supply. That's kind of like the scenario I just gave you at the beachfront supply. You struck oil in your backyard. And actually, <laughs> it's funny, Julie and I actually had a coaching client that had that very thing happened. They bought a, um, they lived up in an area called Dublin, Ohio, and they bought this, uh, basically a farm down in Southern Ohio. And they literally found oil on the property in the property uh, in Southern Ohio, and they owned the mineral rights basically. And so they were able to cash in on their newfound oil wealth, which was pretty amazing. Uh, and his third point is a major employer announced it was building a, a facility two miles away from your house that'll employ 5,000 people who will need a nearby house to live in. Now let's use Austin, Texas as an example to make all three of these points. So Austin, Texas, in, for, in the economy, most assets are um, increasing in cost through because of inflation. Now we're going to drill down on inflation in a second. But in Austin, you have something else going on too, which is genuine appreciation because you have a huge influx of people moving there from, you know, all the normal, uh, you know, California and whatnot. But you also have employers that are moving there. I was um, reading about Elon Musk over the weekend and he's building the facility to build that uh, electric truck, the EV truck. And that's going in Austin. He's building all these other businesses in Austin, all the other businesses that are. So Austin is seeing actual honest to God appreciation because the demand for the assets, the land is also increasing. And then people moving there to work for those companies is also increasing. And by the way, the people that are moving there, they're going to be production line workers and all that building the, the trucks and whatnot. But there are also going to be a lot of high paid people that are going to be wanting to have, you know, nicer, more expensive real estate. Thus, you have an increase in demand across the board at the same time. Time, we're having inflation. So that's the reason that a lot of people think um, as far as Austin, Texas goes, or as far as real estate markets go, there's really no parallels in the United States right now to what you're going to be seeing happen in Austin, Texas. Uh, and it's going to be, actually, Elon Musk said this, it's going to be, what do you call it, a mega city or the world's first mega city or something like that. He thinks that that region around Austin is essentially going to become one of the most prosperous areas um, on planet Earth in the history of humanity, just because of all the things that are going on politically, but more so all the things that are going on opportunistically from what I just described to you. All right, so let's move back. In these cases, regardless of, the, of what the market and the greater economy is doing, your property is now in higher demand than it used to be, making it appreciate. Appreciation is a reflection of change in the actual asset itself, aka Austin. Inflation, on the other hand, and I'm, I know this is confusing, we're going to drill down in a second, so no worries if this is kind of confusing. 
I trust me, it took me a long time to think this through too. Inflation, on the other hand, can look like appreciation while not being true appreciation. Inflation is when the number of dollars one has to exchange in order to buy the property goes up. Sounds like appreciation, right? But it's not. You see, inflation is not a reflection of a change in the asset itself. Rather, inflation is a reflection of the decreasing purchasing power of the currency you exchange for that asset. In other words, the asset isn't necessarily worth more. It's just the dollars you, you that I'm sorry, it's just the dollars uh, you have don't have as much purchasing power as they used to. So you have to give up more of them. Uh, you want to trade when you're buying something, right? Does that make sense? So it's not that the, and, and again, let's set aside the Austin analogy for a second. Let's just focus on inflation. So what happens is, is your, the asset itself is increasing in cost, but it doesn't, it's not necessarily appreciating. It's increasing in, in, in the number of dollars that it takes to purchase it because the, in this case, the Federal Reserve is printing a lot more money with no end in sight. Um, and we're going to take a little side venture here before I get back to his article. That's the essence of what's going to happen in our economy. You're going to see continued inflation. And in some markets, you're going to have inflation mixed with, uh, obviously, it, basically, it's going to all have the same output. It's going to feel the same. Everything's going to go up in cost is where I'm getting to here, not just real estate. And I don't know, everyone has little hobbies, right? You guys, you know, everyone has little interests in things. And, you know, mine's cars and I like fountain pens and, you know, Julie likes old flutes and piccolos and just whatever your little interests are. Everyone has little, maybe you're not even a collector of anything. You're just sort of an interest, you're, you're interested in, so you maybe read magazines or you're a hobbyist or just an enthusiast. You get the idea. You guys find me one thing and anything that's uh, in any form of uh, a holder of value, an asset that's not increasing in price right now, not increasing in cost right now. For example, Julie bought me a really nice fountain pen. What'd she buy this for? Oh, for my birthday, right? And it was a, a very nice Mont Blanc pen. I use it every day. I love fountain pens. And this one's perfect, the perfect everyday writing instrument. Well, um, she paid, and she didn't know this, but she paid more than what the list was on the Mont Blanc website because Mont Blanc was completely sold out of what this not very fancy pen was. Completely sold out. Couldn't get one. So she had overpay. And when you go into like... Um, I was wanting to buy Julie a, and this is going back, I think in, uh, actually, you know what? And I think about this was in February or was it? It doesn't matter. It was, it was a while ago and we went, we were in Atlanta and we walked into a jewelry store and I wanted to, if she wasn't expecting it, I wanted to buy her something as a surprise. And this was a big, huge jewelry store. And we walked in and you know what you saw? No jewelry. <laughs> this jewelry store also carried a bunch of different watch brands. You know what they had? Virtually no watches. They were completely sold out. Now you could say, Tim, that's because of COVID and the manufacturing facilities were shut down and all the rest of it. But all that's true. But what happened on the secondary market now, because of there's so much, so many people with money and you know ability to access money through credit, assets and things that might be retainers of value have increased in cost. And it's really fascinating, I think, just again from a nerdy perspective, to kind of go through in your mind and think about all the things that people are starting to quote unquote invest in that are maybe alternative investment vehicles. Look at Bitcoin, for example. Look at cryptocurrency. There was a currency that came out, a crypto that came out called Dogcoin, as in, you know, DOG coin, and it's gone through the roof. Well, why is that happening? What, is it because, you know, psychologically people are flush with cash? It, yes. It's because people are trying to maybe more sophisticated people are nervous about the diminishing the loss of their buying power of their dollars. And they're trying to at least put their money in something, their cash in something that will retain 
uh, the purchasing power. In other words, if I put $100 in the bank, is that $100 in you know, a month only going to give me $90 worth of buying power? So I can go buy $100 of the groceries today, but in a month, is that uh, you know, $100 only going to buy me, you know, like I said, $90 or $75 of the groceries? That's, what ty- that's the type of thing that happens in inflation. And that's what a lot of people are worried about. And if you start, again, you're going to start hearing people in, in the news and everywhere else, they're going to start talking about inflation. And this is how this whole cycle starts. And it's based in, these are not, this, this cycle that we're about to go into is not part of the thing that everyone likes to talk about. There's a recession every seven years and you can count on it like blah, 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 blah. And the, house, the housing markets go up and they go down every seven or eight years. You know how people like to act like things are completely predictable? Well, there has not been a major inflation cycle that uh, like this one ever because there's never been this much money. And this is going back. And I again, I read two or three, well, listened to two or three books on this. In the history of man, there's never been this much um, money printing and inflation through a, a fiat currency that's ever been that's ever happened. So this is a complete and total um, experiment into monetary theory. And so far, it seems to be honestly it seems to be working out. You know, there's a lot of people obviously that think that this is all going to end in a bad way. But in the interim, there's a lot of people that are creating a lot of paper wealth. Look at the stock market, guys. Why is it that the stock market is increasing in value uh, at at the rate that it is? Why are just different asset classes? It's because people are putting their money into things that they're hoping will at least retain the purchasing power of the dollars invested. That's the underlying reason why a lot of people are doing that. And there's a good bit of FOMO going on right now too, right? Fear of missing out. I mean, you know, look at how it just life in general, every time you walk out your door, you're constantly being manipulated or motivated by, you know, FOMO on everything, for everything. It's, it's a fascinating time in history. But I'll go back to this article. Um, did I read this to you guys yet? Uh, sounds like, okay, yes, I did. All right, price versus value. A related concept we should uh, briefly mention is the distribution between, uh, the distinction between price and value. Again, we use the word value as a catch-all term to broadly uh describe any time it takes more dollars to buy something, but is, but is it really value? Value is like appreciation. It's a reflection of the usefulness and the demand for the property itself. Uh, you, <clears throat> sorry. If you can make the property better and make it more useful, you've truly made it more valuable. Price, on the other hand, is a reflection of the number of dollars it takes to buy something. In other words, price is more like a concept of inflation. So again, let's make this practical. All of us have had uh, experiences where, you know, if you've been on this planet long enough, where you can remember, um, like I remember Julie and I's first house that we bought when we were 22 and 23. We were basically still in college. That's when we bought our, really started getting into real estate. And that house we paid, I think we paid 68000 for it. It was a 280 East Jeffrey in uh, Clintonville, Ohio, 43214. How about that? And it was a little cracker box of a house. The two-car garage probably had more space in the garage than had in all the house, which I was thrilled about. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to buy it. But that aside, so the house itself, we paid 68 for. That house probably today, now that was oh, 25 years ago, something like that. So that house now is probably worth every bit of 230 or 240. 
Does the house itself actually, does it offer any more value than it did before? It's still only 840 square feet. Has something intrinsic, you know, what's increased, what's nothing. The house offers ex- exactly the same usefulness as it did before, but it's gotten so much more expensive. And it hasn't necessarily gotten more expensive because of the increase in, you know, ridiculous increase in demand, like what we're seeing in Austin. It's gotten that much more expensive to purchase because of inflation, because of the devaluing of currency. All right, so back to it. So in this, we're going to get into the weeds here, and I'll take plenty of breaks to walk you guys through it so you don't have to take too long to understand this like uh, your dummy uh, podcast coach named Tim did, okay? So why is this distinction important? So why is it important to understand the difference between appreciation and inflation? Are we overthinking this? At the end of the day, if the dollars uh, one must uh, trade to get my property increases, isn't that a good thing? In my own opinion, yes, it is a good thing. But I personally don't want to... Uh, be confused or deluded about the appreciation of my portfolio versus the inflation. Here are a couple of reasons why. I don't want to convince myself I am investing, I'm an investing genius just because my property appreciated. If the, and appreciated in quotes, right? If the credit really belongs to inflation instead. Now, if I did something meaningful to make my property more useful and thus it is now truly worth more, then that's good. That's good for me. You know, he created it. But I don't want to be one of those people who thinks that just because my name is in the title of the property and that costs more than I bought it for, that I'm brilliant. And I think that's a good, humble way to approach pretty much all forms of investing and keeps your ego out of it. Number two, I don't want to trick myself into thinking that any increase in price of my real estate is somehow isolated to my assets. In other words, if my real estate is inflating in price, that probably means my other expenses, and this is really incredibly important, this is where I was going with this, my other expenses, utility costs, food costs, fuel, etc., are inflating as well. That means if I'm not really making any headway, everything else is just requiring more dollars. Think about your grandparents. There, Here we go. They lived in a house that cost $5,000 and you live in the, in the same house that cost $300,000. Are you 60 times richer than they were? No. They uh, they also lived in a time when a good hamburger would cost 50 cents and you're paying $10. The fallacy uh, uh, can make you feel richer because you see your property price increasing, but you're not actually getting richer. I think that's awesome the way he explained that. So I want you to think about what he said though, because it's really powerful. Now, if in the little, the first bit is what I really want to drill down on. If your assets appreciate um, or inflate, let's just say they cost more. And I mean, I go and I look at Julie and I have dozens of rental properties and I look to see what those things are worth. We have a, you know, we check on them, I don't know, probably every other week, you know, basically just monitoring things. And I can see that they're going up in value and I add those numbers up and it makes me feel warm and fuzzy. And I think about, wow, we're, you know, we just, you know, thanks past him and Julie and, you know, we're, you know, multi, multi, multi millionaires from all these assets we own. But it's also, to his point, it's a bit of a, you know, an emotional lie because at the same time, the property value has increased. That little house on East Jeffrey, for example, has gone from 70 grand to say, 270 or God forbid, you know, I don't know how, how expensive it is, but something like that. Um, everything else has gotten as equally as expensive. So there's no advantage to, the, there's no wealth effect from having the increase in value of the property other than psychological, other than on paper, because everything else that, that you take to live costs more as well. For example, think how much it costs to buy a car. For example, your utility payments. He made all these, you know, points in his article, but he some he didn't really drill down on this particular point that we've been warning you guys about when COVID kicked in and the government started the printing presses in earnest again. How about this? Property taxes are going to increase. 
And, um, you know, I will go back to Austin. So in Austin, Texas, your property, you have no state taxes. Yay, no state taxes. But they charge you an onerous property taxes. And in some areas, it's well over 2%. And those of you in Dallas, I believe you guys are paying close to 3% of whatever the city decides your property is worth. And, you know, that is a huge chunk of money considering the average property in Austin, Texas. I don't know what the average cost is, but I bet you it's, I would be surprised if it's any less than $600,000, maybe $550,000, you know, depending on the area, it could be significantly more. We've, we've got coaching clients in Austin um, that are selling properties that are $10, 20000000 million. And we talked about that on the podcast the other day. So those property taxes are increasing. And so if the property taxes and all the other expenses in your life are increasing commensurately with the appreciation or the inflation on your property, are you really getting any benefit from the added, you know, essentially paper value or numerical value of the property? No, <laughs> you're not. It does make you feel good. Um, but there is no, you can't, you literally... Uh, can't eat it because the food that you would have bought with that is going to buy the exact same amount of food. And where all this goes wrong and where this all goes bad. So some of you are thinking, Tim, this is just semantics. And at this point, truthfully, it is just kind of semantics. But it's important to understand because on the other side of this, um, you know, this essentially this debt curve, this debt bubble, whatever people want to call it, right? But on the other side of all this money printing and all this on the other side of this um, inflation creating that the government's doing, and I'll exp- and I'll, I'll explain to you from the layman's perspective why they're doing it. But on the other side of that is going to be a possible uh, hyperinflation stage, and we're hyper. And so there's there's different you know depending on what prognosticator you subscribe to, there's differing outcomes. And I'm going to give you I'll give you a couple. Number one, there's going to be hyperinflation, which will basically be the destruction of the U.S. dollar. I don't think that's ever going to happen. Number two, you're going to have the U.S. dollar is going to be replaced because it's going to get to the point where the U.S. dollar is no longer seen as the global reserve currency. Right now, when you travel in most of the in most of the world, rather, it's easy to you don't even need in the EU, for example, uh, EUs. You don't even need euros. You can actually just use dollars in most cases. Um, though then you have to start worrying whether they're actually giving you proper change. So it's always good just to use a credit card because then it does it for you. But that in aside, when you're traveling and whatnot, when you're having these different experiences, the U.S. dollar is accepted forever. It's called the petrodollar because the U.S. actually, when all these, uh, you know, basically Saudi Arabia and all these Middle Eastern countries and anyone that's trading in oil and anyone that's, tra- you know, barrels of oil, you hear all this, maybe you don't, but in essence, all those accounts are settled at the end of the day in U.S. dollars through the U.S. Treasury. So most of the world's economy is settles through or flows through the U.S. Treasury. So the U.S. Treasury, treasury and the U.S. government after um, World War II, basic, and I'm not going to get any nerd, more nerdish than this, but after World War II, essentially had control over the U.S. over the global um, supply of money. And everyone essentially, um, because U.S. after World War II was the only country, one of the only, well, it was one of the most, it was the most dominant country that wasn't having to rebuild. It wasn't in a destruction phase. It wasn't literally having to rebuild itself out of the rubble. So the uh, you know U.S., uh, you know, United States government and all these other governments got together and agreed that everyone in the world was basically going to benchmark the value of their currency based on the value of the U.S. currency. Now, I'm moving on here. And so that was back when the U.S. dollar was uh, backed by gold. And so in other words, you would have, and I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember this, and I am barely old enough to remember this, but I remember when I was a kid and I had my paper route or I was shoveling driveways or I was doing whatever I was doing, 
you could actually have somebody pay you. And on the currency, it actually said that, in essence, I don't remember the exact words, but this $5 is, you know, you can take this into any, you know, government-insured bank. Again, I'm just remembering poorly here, but you get the gist of it, in exchange for gold. So I could take, hypothetically, that $5 bill into my local bank, and they would give me $5 worth of gold. So the U.S. currency was backed by gold. Um, and that was something that lasted until uh, Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon, then presidents following that, they decided, well, we can't have the uh, our ability to print dollars be limited by the amount of gold we own because that means we won't ever be able to print enough dollars, and we'll always have to be on somewhat of a financial, you know, uh, uh, budget or diet because if we've only got whatever the amount of money is in gold, whatever the amount of current, you know, gold they have in in the stockpiles, which I do believe the government has, um, once that is exhausted, we, you know, we can only print, you know, one ounce of gold equals, you know, whatever it would be, $1,000. Um, and, right, there's a limit to how much they can print because there's a limit to how much gold they have. That's the essence of the reason why every single country on planet Earth got off the gold standard because then when not having a gold standard, they could just basically – they could literally print as much money as they wanted to. And the Fed then could essentially control, in essence, the supply and demand of the availability of currency. And that's the modern era that we're in now. So when you hear, for example, you know, because of COVID, the government was printing all this trillions and trillions of dollars, they can't stop doing that. Because once they start printing the money, the government becomes, or I'm sorry, the economy becomes dependent on that uh, consistent infusion of uh, money into the economy to keep everything afloat. So the government and this, uh, the government's been in this uh, quantitative easing or money printing cycle forever for you know maybe what twenty years in, in a meaningful way, and they cannot stop because if they pull back on the printing of the money and they stop essentially injecting money into the banks that then basically put it into the economy and just different mechanisms. They'll buy bonds, they buy mortgages, they buy all kinds of things. So they are essentially consuming the things that keeps money flowing. So if the Fed, for example, stopped buying um, just you know bonds or whatnot, and those bonds are the very things that basically are back, backing uh, mortgages, and then if they stop buying them and there's not enough market for the mortgages, uh, for those mortgage bonds, and then all of a sudden the people selling the bonds in order to entice people to want to buy the bonds have to then start raising the interest rates, say, okay, you know, Bob, I'll pay you, you know, 4% to buy this bond, um, you know, and Bob says, nope, I'm, I don't, I want more than that. So now it's 5%. Well, that means, and again, I'm doing a poor job of explaining this, but conceptually stay with me here. What that means in essence is that the mortgage rates are going to increase. And so what the Fed has done is said, nope, we're going to continue to buy bonds. We're going to buy mortgage debt. We're going to essentially continue to backstop not just U.S. housing, but everything in the economy right now is backstopped by the U.S. government. And they're just constantly printing money. They're not they're doing it in the literal sense, but it's obviously not actual printing money. It's all ones and zeros. It's all digital. But they're doing it also by creating markets for securities. The one thing they haven't done yet um, directly is start to buy stocks and bonds, which uh, that will be interesting. If you guys start hearing about that, the reason the government would be doing that is not as an investment, but because they're trying to keep the values of stocks, like literally stocks, trying to keep them inflated so there's not a precipitous drop or a depreciation in equity prices, right? So that you're going to see the government is going to have absolutely zero um, there, there are no, there's nothing they're not going to do to continue to keep the, the economy afloat. And now, where does it all end? Because it has to end somewhere. Or how does it all end? That's what nobody knows. 
And you can start, you know, poking around in history and start finding some answers. And I told you the first one, the collapse of the uh, dollar. And there were, there are many, many historical examples of that happening. Um, You know, in Venezuela right now, uh, uh, in Germany it happened, right? Um, you could ha- you've seen pictures of people pushing wheelbarrows of money around to buy a loaf of bread. And we've talked about that on this podcast before. Uh, that is an actual thing. Julie and I weren't sure those pictures were real, but they were real. And those were times when there was, you know, essentially there was so much money that had so little value that a wheelbarrow of money was usually, you know, it was used to push to the, the baker and the baker then would, was able to, you know, sell you a loaf of bread. Well, I mean, that's what happens when you have hyperinflation. That's what happens on the other end of this. And um, again, I'm not predicting that, and I don't. I'm not hearing of anyone else that's uh, predicting that. But it's obviously it could happen. Um, but what's most likely going to happen? And these are my. This is again. Research this yourself. Become a a, a nerdist on this topic yourself because it is fascinating. Um, what will probably happen, in my humble opinion, is there's going to be a reissuance of U.S. currency, and it will be gold backed. And I definitely think that's going to happen. And I don't know when it's going to happen. And I do think it's going to be gold. I don't think it'll be crypto. Um, Now, there are a lot of people that don't think it's going to be gold that do think it's going to be crypto. Thus, the reason that you have Bitcoin now at $50,000 an ounce and you have all these other things that are starting to happen now. So in, in crypto is very interesting because crypto is a decentralized currency that's based on the blockchain, meaning you can't really track ownership of who has the dollars. And you can't really, it's not, it can't be government controlled, which means that ultimately there's the government can't inflate uh, crypto. The, for example, Bitcoin, the government, and I sound like a Bitcoin advocate and Julia and I own absolutely no Bitcoin or no cryptos. Um, and maybe we should have five years ago bought a lot, but we didn't. Uh, but the point is, is that's one of the very, I think the uh, libertarian um, uh, interesting perspectives on cryptos is that the government can't manipulate it and can't print it and can't devalue it. So when you hear about people like the real cost to in inflation, when inflation really kicks in, is we're in the sort of honeymoon phase right now where everyone's feeling richer. But when you start seeing the cost of food, when you start seeing the cost of you know everything that you need to pay your bills increase and your wages don't keep up with it, that's when the rubber meets the road and that's when real pain starts to get felt. And so again, right now, there's not an, a meaningful increase in cost, but I will share with you something that's fascinating. Now, I want you guys to think about what I'm about to say. This happened, this started happening in 2007 and 2008 when I'm about to describe. Um, you Have you noticed that the portions or the uh, like Coke cans and other you know things you buy at grocery stores, did you notice that the amount that they're selling you um, actually, the, the size of the product and the amount of the product they're selling you actually decreased. Do you notice that? <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? It, I use Coke cans as an example because that's the most obvious one. But everything went down in size. And the, the food manufacturers were doing that because they were fearful of raising prices because that obviously could create some, you know, obviously some, you know, if nothing else, political angst because then people would start feeling the actual cost of the inflation in their groceries. Uh, but yeah, there it is. So there's one obvious example. So that's the way that um, essentially businesses have, have started to react to in the inflation creeping into prices by uh, you know making the amount of product that they're actually selling you smaller. You probably noticed, but you didn't really think much of it, did you? Well, here's another thing. 
And we talked about this before, too, on the show. One of the reasons that real estate is going to continue to ascend is because of inflation and in certain markets, honest to God, appreciation. But now you're seeing massive inflation in the cost of building supplies. That's a real deal. I mean, Julie and I were pricing out doing a little simple project at our old place in Murphy, North Carolina, you know. And just the wood cost, I thought the contractor was lying to me. And I went online and I researched it myself. And it was extraordinary. So the cost of everything is going up. And until it hits, um, you know, Main Street's pocketbook, until Bob the barber has to raise the price on his, um, you know, his haircuts from, you know, the, you've been paying him ten dollars you know, forever, and all of a sudden his rent goes up, all of a sudden his electric bill goes up, all of a sudden the cost of his everything goes up, he has to increase the price. I mean, that's going to be an uncomfortable situation for Bob the barber. Now, if all your prices start to increase, if your cost of living starts to increase, and remember I told you this the third time, and your wages don't increase, then you have a real problem in the economy because then real people are going to feel the actual pain of inflation. Then it becomes a big political problem. And then in those cases, and back when inflation in my lifetime, in many of your lifetimes, when it really was rearing its ugly head before, was uh, back when... um, Ronald Reagan became president for his first term. And I was just a little kid, but um, there was a guy named Paul Volcker. And Paul Volcker basically raised the crap out of interest rates. And it was you were blessed to get a mortgage interest rate at double digits, right? Completely different economy. Um, but you, who knows how it's going to all sort out. So the, the suggestions that we have for people financially preparing themselves, and we've been telling coaching clients this, is believe it or not, buy real estate. In that, I know that sounds you know maybe a little wackadoo based on what I just said, but here's why. The interest rates on mortgages right now are insanely low. Now, I'm going to give you guys a little math problem here. So if you can buy, let's say you're going to you know, traipse back to 280 East Jeffrey, back in 43214 in Columbus, Ohio, Julie and I's first house, right? And you're going to purchase that house for however much they're going to charge you for it, 250 grand. Well, if you can purchase that house and get a mortgage that's 3% or whatnot, I can't do the math on my head on what the payment would be, but most certainly less than $1,000 a month. Well, I can tell you for sure that you could rent that house out for at least that a month, if not more. Now, if you can then basically as, so you've got a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, you're maybe making 100 bucks per month or 200 bucks per month on that, uh, depending on your down payment, right, uh, on that property. It, you know, you paid definitely a huge number for it, at least from historical measures. You definitely paid full retail for it. But because the interest rate is so low and because the projected inflation on that house is going to be potentially uh, far more than what the interest rate is, you're actually going to essentially have the house increase in value at the same time the tenant's paying the mortgage payment. So you, let's say the the, uh, the all-in payment with taxes and everything is $1,000 a month. And let's say you only get $1,000 a month. But let's say that you know that property is actually appreciating every year, or I'm sorry, see how I, I screwed it up too? It's actually inflating every year by 5 or 6% per year, right? Think about this. Do the math on this. You're actually going to have the tenant cover all the carrying costs of the property, you know, assuming there's no big, you know, you know, the roof doesn't blow off. But the inflation on the property is going to make it you so that you're more paper rich. And then if you wanted to acquire more assets, then down the road, you could obviously borrow against that property. You guys get it? So buying real estate right now, buying residential real estate, not buying. I personally, I would be very, very, very careful about buying uh, a luxury home unless it's for yourself to live into and you can and you can afford the cash flow, then go for it. But if you're looking to purchase investment properties right now, that is a total home run, provided that the frankly, the interest rates stay low. 
And because the number, if, if you look at uh, if you look at this from thirty thousand feet, you have so many new tenants to, uh, that are going to be emerging. You know, Generation Z, millennials, all these people that are going to be looking for homes uh, that they have to live in. And apartments are always going to be the go-to for every investor. Everyone says buy multifamily, and it sort of makes sense. But ultimately, in cycles like what we're describing, the single families are are, are going to be easier to rent, easier to stay rented. You can be pickier with your tenant. And they're actually going to uh, inflate in cost more than a multifamily. Multifamilies have a, don't necessarily attract the same type of tenant that a single family would, right? If you have a choice between living in a you know multifamily building or living in a single family home, nine people out of ten are going to choose single families, and that's probably the biggest reason why these big, huge hedge funds. I think it's called BlackRock. Is that the one, if I remember correctly? They own primarily, they're the world's largest uh, owner of real estate right now, and they own what? All single families. It's because they're attracted to that, you know, the multiple benefits of owning a small single family house. All right, so is there anything else I need to read to you guys about this article? Let me see. No, I think I hit pretty much all the nails on the head. So your smart move right now is to uh, pay attention to the use of those words, pay attention to um, you know, people that are frankly um, going to lead you down the path to make money no matter what direction the economy is going, no matter what's happening in the economy, no matter what's happening with monetary supply or whoever the president is or whatever. You can make money helping people. If your primary aim in life is helping people, being of service to other people, all those external factors have influence, but they don't really matter. No matter what's going on in the economy, whatever's going on in the world, whatever's going on, period, there'll always be people that have to buy or sell real estate. And right now we're in this, I think, this macro wave that's going to be something that's going to last a generation, you know, as far as real estate demand goes. And you are in the right place at the right time. Monitor that you're not, I mean, I'll just, you know, Julie and I are very conservative people, but monitor that you're not over leveraging yourself. Try to keep some cash on the sidelines so that you can, um, you know, acquire some assets. Don't expect there to be any precipitous drop in prices. Again, with the exceptions, there might be little soft spots in, in, in local markets, which makes sense. But this this real estate cycle that we're in now is unlike anything that we all ever experienced, we've ever experienced before and we'll ever experience again. I can't say that for sure, obviously, but most likely, because what we're experiencing now is a massive wave of inflation, which is really going to start being noticeable. It already is in housing. Can you guys explain to me why real estate and like Murphy, North Carolina has gone up so much? Can you explain to me why all these ancillary, these B and C markets, these markets that for years have never had anything other than mild inflation, never any appreciation? Can you tell me why those markets have doubled and tripled in value? Now we can say, well, you know, people are moving out of the cities and there's Starlink and people can now get internet connectivity anywhere on planet Earth and they don't have to be, you know, attached to geographic locations that were really expensive. And all those things are true. But also, guys, so that's an increase in demand, right? That would be inflation. But it's also because – I'm sorry, that would be appreciation. But that's also because of inflation too. You know, this is, a, this is an interesting cycle in all of our adult lives. Don't be fearful of it. Have your eyes open to it. Uh, have the ability to explain it to other people with, you know, confidence. 
And at the same time, be be interested in it because if you are paying attention, you actually can do incredibly well during a cycle like this. You can obviously make just literally tens of millions of dollars depending on what position you allow yourself to be in. Or at the very least, you can create financial security for not just yourself, but maybe the future versions of you, right? Your future, um, you know, your grandchildren and all the rest of it because of, of we're going through a cycle like this. And I'll leave you guys with this last thought. The greatest fortunes in the history of man have always been made during the greatest times of change. Now, I want you to let that simmer for a bit. The greatest fortunes of man and woman, you know, humans, right, have always been made during the greatest times of political uncertainty, economic uncertainty, wars, um, essentially, you know, big evolutions of, you know, different thoughts. For example, industrial revolution, the more modern ones, the tech revolution, internet, all those types of things. So when you have these big surges of change that are happening, that's when the greatest fortunes are being made. And right now, even though you don't, you aren't aware of it, you're in the midst of one now. What we're seeing now from uh, these different, uh, the tech companies and what we're seeing in the economy, what we're seeing is the, uh, the, fru- the fruition of a lot of prognostication that happened 20 or 30 years ago. We're starting to see things that people were anticipating happening, happening really at a, a vastly quick in pace. And I think largely because of COVID, but I'll tell you the other reason why, the access to capital. Because of, again, because all this money printing, more people have access to money. And so businesses are able to uh, raise capital faster. They're able to have stock appreciation faster. They're able to essentially buy more businesses. They're able to essentially, you know, be bigger, faster and move. You know, if it was a five-year plan is now a six-month plan. That's how we're treating our business. We're operating on the same premise that there's going to be more opportunity more opportunity faster, but you have to be you know, aggressive to seize it and don't have any mindset whatsoever that the sky is falling. And, and I, you know, I said I was going to round the bend a second ago, but I guess ultimately that is who I'm hoping that I reach today on this show is a lot of you guys, and I know why I lived through it as well. The last housing bust was painful. It was ugly. You know, it was horrible in every way. The human cost was, you know, just grisly. And the same thing's going to happen on the other side of this too, guys. You know, all this, there's so many reports that are coming out where they're anticipating all kinds of deep-rooted psychological issues from COVID. And there's going to be a lot of people that will never, ever emotionally, let alone financially, come back from it. You've got to really be careful you don't get stuck in that same rut. So many real estate people, because those were our people, were stuck in a rut as a result of the real estate crash in 07, 08, 09. And y'all are getting stuck in that same rut again. I can just feel it. You just barely, some of you, were able to pull yourselves out of the last rut, and now you're getting right back into another one. That's a huge mistake. You've got to be monitoring yourself for that. So don't allow yourself to be sucked into any sort of quagmire, expecting there to be any sort of locus apocalypse and prices just to blow up, and you're sitting on the sidelines so you can say, I told you so. Because what happens is when you think like that, you miss too much opportunity. Look at all you guys that are basically sitting along the sidelines of watching EXP, EXP Realty. And, and look, I get it. I totally understand. But the reality of it is this EXP Realty right now, it is going to be one of the, it is in my professional you know, opinion, it, it is the last best business opportunity of all of our lifetimes. I didn't say last business opportunity. I said last 
best business opportunity of all of our lifetimes. And are you doing anything about it? Or are you just sitting around and, you know, here believing that maybe one day it's going to, you know, what? I don't know, even know what. The things you guys tell yourselves not to take action on such obvious things uh, that could have such a huge impact, a positive impact on your lives, and you don't take advantage of them. You don't take them seriously. You know, you, you, you paint this picture in your head why you shouldn't do it. You let this, your, your inner skeptic keeps you broke. Um, and I've never met a skeptic. I've never met somebody who is a doomsdayer or who is a, you know, I've never met anybody like that that's rich, where their money works for them, they no longer work for their money. People who think like that don't attract other people to them in abundance to the point where they'll actually be able to create any sort of financial, you know, velocity that creates, um, you know, wealth for them. That won't happen. So if you're finding yourself stuck in an emotional quagmire, uh, because of the uncertainty that you're feeling, or maybe you're having these not so deeply rooted emotions start to you know boil up from the last housing crash, and you're feeling like that's going to happen before or happen again. Rather, you got to let you got you have to set that aside because maybe eventually it will. But in the intervening maybe decades, what are you going to lose out on? It doesn't make sense for you not to seize the opportunity that's in front of you. You might be right long term, but short term, there's virtually no reason to believe that the essentially winds aren't your at your back. And provided you choose to turn around. So on that note, if you guys want to talk with me about anything, EXP Realty, Julie and I would obviously love to sponsor you at EXP Realty. Just text me directly at 512-758-0206, 512-758-0206. In the meantime, have a fantastic day and we'll talk to you on the show tomorrow. This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris, Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time, thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.